0: How often do you compare yourself to others? Let's face it, uh, there's always going to be someone more successful than you, regardless of actually how you gauge success. But what about when you have a friend or a sibling or a partner who is consistently at the top of their game? How does that affect how you feel about yourself and them? Can it help motivate you or can it leave us feeling never quite good enough. Chris Cheers is a psychologist and the author of the new rulebook Notes from a Psychologist to Help Redefine the Way You Live. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Jacinta.
0: Now I have to ask you two questions, really. Do you have an overachiever in your life or are you that dastardly overachiever in someone else's life?
1: (laughs) I certainly have one in my life. To the point my partner, Nick, who I live with, uh, last night when I mentioned this this is what we're going to talk about, started listing his achievements... (laughs) to make sure it was clear that if he came up that I knew what his achievements were. That's the level of overachiever that I've got.
0: That is hilarious. And uh, so you've got a list that we'll perhaps share if we decide to be kind to him in just a moment. He would love that. Um, Do you find yourself, like, comparing your own achievements to him?
1: They're very different achievements. And I think I've done a lot of work over the years. You know, I'm a psychologist. I've done that work to know what success looks like for me and what success looks like for me. is very different to what success looks like for him, but it, it takes work when he is achieving. And when I'm in a place where I'm not, that's when it gets more difficult. When I don't feel that sense of security of self, that's when his achievements can really kind of trigger me a little bit.
0: And just by the way, when he mentions it to you all the time as well, that doesn't help. Um, but with things like social media, that feels like it has absolutely kind of compounded this issue where we compare ourselves with others. Do you find that that you know people coming into your rooms, that that's what they want to talk about a bit?
1: Absolutely. we Our brains are made to compare, right? Like being part of a social group and being a you know, a member of that and knowing you're secure within that is incredibly important for our well-being, and has been, you know, since Cape People time, we're built to compare and we're built to be social, but we were built to do that with maybe like 15 people in our life, you know, our our sort of tribe or our people, what social media has done is now we're not just comparing to that small village we live with, we're comparing to everyone and we're not just comparing to who they really are. We're comparing to the person they're putting up on social media and not many people share, you know, when things aren't going well or when they fail, they share their achievements so it's like this: just plethora of thousands and thousands of people achieving things. So it's any wonder that that can really, in, you know, impact us when we're looking at that day to day.
0: It's a really interesting evolutionary kind of thing, isn't it? That comparison that we do, um, but of course, as you mentioned, when that's happening back in those days, when we're in a village with fifteen other people, we can see the dynamic nature of what it is to be the full human rather than just this selected part of ourselves. Is that also, as you've mentioned there, the issue in trying to pull apart actually what's the full story here?
1: Yeah, and comparing yourself to the full person, you know, rather than just their achievements. Because when you know, you you know, 10, 15 people, you know their good parts and you know their bad parts. So when you're comparing yourself, you're comparing yourself to that authentic whole self. And rather than online, you know, just comparing yourself to that, just high-achieving self. And if anyone is comparing themselves to only the achieving parts of other people, no wonder that's going to leave people to not, you know, not be feeling like they're doing enough themselves.
0: It's an interesting space, isn't it? Because you don't pop up, oh, Today, you know, I and mentioning all the things that we don't actually achieve. It is such a selective environment to be displaying the human self. Is Is that a problem in itself or do we need to sort of shift the way we think about what that filter is?
1: Parts of it are helpful. You know, I think when we compare parts of that can lead to jealousy and envy, which on the surface seem like bad, like we don't want to feel jealous and envy. But when we actually sit with, you know, jealousy and envy, it can sometimes be a really useful path for letting us know what we want from life. You know, so if someone is achieving something and that's really getting a goat, it can be difficult but really helpful to actually sit in that feeling and going, what does this mean for me? What, what am I not doing in my life that I want? Or what is the path for me to maybe achieve the thing that I'm not getting? So that jealousy and envy can be a good first step for some, you know, really interesting kind of self-development.
0: I love that when you phrase things this way. It's just the first step in and then it's about the interrogation as to what those feelings are representing. What are you hearing from people, though, most commonly Um, in that comparison? Is it the small village or the large village? Is it the family and people that they grew up with that they're seeing that comparison the most? Or is it friends? Is it partners? Where are you seeing that comparison happening?
1: I think it depends a lot on age. I think a younger generation, you know, I'm seeing people in their 20s and their 30s, it tends to be focused a bit more online or tends to be focused a bit more with friendships or, you know, comparing yourself, even that kind of parasocial relationship, comparing ourselves to celebrities or people that we think we know, but we don't even know. Whereas I think a generation, you know, 40s, 50s, you know, people who are in long-term relationships or maybe closer with, with family relationships, them, it's the partner's when they're achieving or the siblings is a huge one, I think. That, that's what comes to mind when you talk about it. Comparing yourself to siblings is something that I think a lot of people experience because, you know, a lot of the time when we experience things as kids, that continues throughout our adulthood. And when you're kids, it's your brother and sister that you feel that comparison to. So I think if when you're a kid, your sister was the one who achieved and, and you were seen as one who, who wasn't, that pattern can really continue and be exacerbated as you go throughout life. <laughs>
0: Is then, if we look at it that through that sort of sibling uh, frame, is the evolutionary um, aspect of this about survival? Because when you are, you know, um, you're commended for the work you do, or you're seen in a positive light, that's obviously a, a good thing in that kind of, you know, primeval kind of um,
1: headspace. To strive to be good, and I think this is where it's useful to, to separate between high achievers and overachievers. Oh, so okay. So high achievers are people who are excelling and striving to be successful in the way that is meaningful to them. You know, we want high achievers and we want to be inspired to, to strive towards excellence in, in whatever path we choose. Overachievers is a whole other thing. Overachievers, and this is where I put my partner in, tend to be people <laughs> who, you know, I like to call them never enoughers. Because no achievement is ever enough. Because unfortunately, what's underneath the strive to achieve as an overachiever tends to be a fear of failure. And unfortunately, no matter how much you do or how much you achieve, you will never get rid of that fear of failure. You'll never get rid of that that feeling that's underneath. So for overachievers, if you're comparing yourself to an overachiever, keep in mind that beyond that may well be a part of them that is just not feeling good enough all the time.
0: That distinction is one of those mic drop moments because that high achiever versus overachiever is where potentially the issues are in terms of how we feel about achievement. And, And as you say, at the base of that, Really, ultimately, we're talking, are we, about the fear of failure?
1: Yeah. And so many of us feel that. Whether it's, we have different versions. I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. I'm not lovable. You know, and I say these things and I'm really aware that one of those will hit right in the heart for a lot of people. Because I want to normalize that we all feel those underneath. We all have these core beliefs about ourselves. It's not your fault. It's often based on something from your past. But then that core belief enacts in different ways in our life. And for some people that enacts in this way of as long as I keep achieving, I don't have to feel that thing. And sometimes that's what's unfortunately beyond that sense of what we're seeing as overachievement or high achievement, but what's beyond that might be something really difficult. And if you're in relationships with these people, be it family or friends, it's really important to keep that in mind because you want to create space. To validate that person who on the surface feels like they don't need validation. Like I think about my partner. On the surface, (laughs) it would look like he's fine. Like he's he's very, you know, driven and successful. He's got his list of achievements (laughs) to
0: hand over to you to pass on to the radio.
1: But I know it's my job as a partner to know him better than most. And I know that he needs that part of him validated that doesn't feel good enough. And I think that's what being in relationships with with people like this is sometimes about. You're trying to talk to that part of them that is more vulnerable and isn't actually showing in, maybe online or in the big world.
0: I'm so interested that you say that you recognise that when you say I'm not lovable enough, I'm not good enough, that it will resonate with a really large portion of people. Why do we carry those feelings? Where do they come from if they're so prevalent in our community? What are we doing?
1: I really like to say that often and aloud because it's the part of us we don't often talk about. And as a psychologist, I'm you know, in that place where people are generous and vulnerable with me. And that's why I say this because I've heard it from so many people, those feelings of I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, I'm worthless. And we have to name these things because it takes away their power a bit. You know, when we just say it out loud and say that this is a common experience, it it makes us start to realize, hang on, if it's not just me, then maybe it means it's not my fault. Maybe that means I'm not broken. And the part of you that can kind of explore that hopefully goes towards a place where you can start to see that often it's our childhood or something in our past or something in our experience that leads us to have that belief about self. And those experiences you weren't in control of. And I think that's a really important part of this, so you can start to separate from that bit where you feel broken. It's not you're broken, you're just – your experiences add up to who you are today.
0: So interesting, isn't it? How even small things in our past can be kind of left inside us to to manifest and grow into very strong beliefs about who we are. How do we mitigate against that? You know, how do we kind of guard against our own children – Or we go back in time and we go, buddy, you did a good job.
1: The first step is acknowledging it and understanding it. You know, as a psychologist, I'm going to obviously recommend therapy. Here is a really useful way.
0: (laughs) I'm lying down, ready,
1: (laughs) ready to go. To understand how those past experiences may have contributed to these core beliefs we have about self, because when we can understand something, I think then we can truly start to change it. But if we don't understand it, you know, we're, we're not really working in an effective way. So I think understanding and naming it is the first step. And the second step is realizing that it's just part of you. So these core beliefs, they're there, but we can notice them, listen to them, but we don't necessarily have to act from them. And, and that is really what the process of therapy tends to be about. To understand and learn, you know, often grief could be a way to think about this. Grief is often that part of you that it never really goes away, but you learn to be able to acknowledge it and notice it. So it's not overwhelming. It's just part of you. And core beliefs can be a lot like that that you can notice it and acknowledge it but work towards a place where it's not controlling you or it's not in the driver's seat you are
0: you can sit in the passion to sit, maybe at the back. Chris Cheers, I always feel better speaking with you. He's a psychologist and the author of the new rule book: Notes from a Psychologist, to help redefine the way you live. You are on ABC. Radio National on Life Matters. I want to know too, because what I thought and was hopeful for, that the disruption that we got socially with the pandemic may have pushed us into challenging these ideas of what success is. You know, we've talked a lot about that, redefining what we do, how we live. Have you seen much of that in that kind of analysis of what what is it? What is this success thing?
1: I saw it last year a lot more, and the beginning of this year I saw people wanting to redefine what success looked like. You know, when we think about high achievers or overachievers – one way to think about it is they're just achieving at the society is putting on you. They're not necessarily achieving at the things that are meaningful. The high achievers or overachievers tend to just be doing what's expected. And I think those expectations, I and a lot of people were questioning over the last few years, like how to live, how to love, what work looks like. Um, and these questions and this is uncertainty was really difficult to sit with. And I think that uncertainty being so difficult to sit with, I think people are starting to return to some of those structures now. So I'm seeing a lot more of people maybe wanting to return to normal or or workplaces wanting to force people back to normal or people going back into... You know habits in their relationship that that have always been there. So I would welcome people, and you know, I hope that space is still there for us to question some of these expectations, especially around work. Because when we question the expectations of what a good life looks like, it allows us to actually redefine our self worth. Because suddenly, our sense of worthiness doesn't have to be based on doing what's expected. We can actually base it on whatever we think a meaningful life looks like.
0: Oh. Can we flip this, though? Let's be um, on the other side for a moment and suggest that perhaps comparing ourselves to others might be, in fact, useful. Can it help us drive um, a better form of living?
1: Absolutely. I think we need to notice the difference. And you'll you'll notice that by listening to your body, you know, and listening to your emotions. Because if, if someone's achieving something and your reaction is one to, oh, I want to do that or I want to work harder – if you feel motivated from a want to live a meaningful life, or if you feel internally motivated from a want to do something that's important to you, that will feel very different. Then if you see someone achieving and then you're just like, oh, I just need to do this. I just need to you know, live up to this expectation. I need to work harder. If for you that starts to feel like you're just doing what's expected rather than something important to you, or you're just working harder to you know, achieve at work or this thing that maybe isn't meaningful to you, that will feel different in your body. So I think comparing to someone who's achieving highly, can be motivating but we've got to notice the difference between a motivation that's based in something meaningful versus a motivation that's based in like a fear of fa- a fear of failure or self criticism
0: I love that idea of returning to the body for the answers it's sort of old old wisdom
1: isn't it It's there. And so many psychologists and mental health, we tend to separate the two, right? We've got mental health and physical health, like the body and mind are separate. I think Descartes got it wrong. I think we need to... (laughs) You heard (laughs) it first,
0: everyone. Descartes got it wrong.
1: We need to see how they relate, that our body and our emotions are in our body and listening to our body and listening to our emotions can be a really helpful path to create this meaningful life for us.
0: I want to dig in more to this um, compulsion for comparison, Um, we often do it, as we say, you know, when we bring it back closer to home, we're thinking about brothers and sisters. You mentioned the siblings. It could also be cousins. Um, Someone who was always doing really, really well, maybe from a great motivation. Um, How does that – why and how does that affect the way we feel about ourselves? Why are we so bound into others when we think about our own living?
1: I would – to take the sibling part there because it's I think a really interesting example because it goes back to those old sort of patterns so siblings are something you know we grow up with and if you think about the number of hours you spend with your siblings growing up they, it's more than you know most people you ever spend within your life so it's any wonder that those relationships really impact how you view yourself because we've got to remember as we grow up we're working on our identity and we're working on our understanding of self and we're working on you know who we are that Really lasts until kind of your adolescence. So if at that exact time you're working out who you are, you have a sibling who everyone around you is telling you is you know high achieving. You know the teachers are high achieving. That everyone's saying they're a high achiever. It doesn't leave a lot of space for you to also be a high achiever. We tend to look at siblings and families almost like you're this identity and you're, you're the achiever and you're not.
0: And in some ways you may choose an alternate identity of being the rebel or the one that doesn't achieve just so that you have a space.
1: Yeah. And it's, system theory tells us that, you know, families exist in a system. You know, who we are and who we grow up to be has to match with our system, like what the space is there for. And if the space is there for, if there isn't a space for another high achiever, you kind of have to choose a different identity. And, that, that you do as a kid, or it gets put onto you, that idea of identity foreclosure, which is that idea where it's all too much, we just do what we're told. We just kind of foreclose our identity to to do what's expected. And a lot of people choose that, who are having difficult childhoods or are not feeling a lot of self, sense of self-worth. They just sort of do what's expected in the hope that that's going to lead to the good life. And I think that's what we've got to notice when, you know, in childhood, where they Whatever space was left for you, you know, sometimes it wasn't your choice what space was left for you. You've just sort of grown up to fill that space. And sometimes that space could not be the high achieving space. Sometimes it was the rebel space. Sometimes it was the, <laughs> the peacemaker space. But the, the space that was left there for you is one that really has an influence on who we can be as we grow.
0: Chris Cheers is your guest, psychologist, and um, his own book, in fact, as well, that looks at supporting some of the new ways that we can look about living this in this wild, crazy world that we're in. The new rule book, it's called Notes from a Psychologist to Help Redefine the Way You Live. It's really interesting, isn't it, that impact of early childhood. And I'm wondering, as we become adults and we move outside of that family unit, we create our own systems. How much agency we really do have as adults, how much we're able to make decisions outside of those very strong concepts that we had about ourselves?
1: It takes time and it takes awareness because your brain, one way to think about it is you're you're sort of built – your brain is kind of born like you're this forest, like amazing, you know, grasses and plants everywhere. And as you grow, slowly, little paths are made. And as you grow more and more, those paths, those well-worn paths kind of become roads. And then those roads become highways. So. When we're adults, if you're trying to do things differently, or you're trying to act differently, or have a different kind of relationship, it's kind of like trying to turn off that superhighway and going down into this really unworn kind of difficult path. So, but know that your brain is plastic; your brain can change, but it takes time and it takes effort, it takes repetition. So, the more you practice it, the more you do it, you can absolutely develop different ways of being and different ways of being in relationships. But, but it will be difficult to to kind of get off that superhighway that you had in. China childhood and develop those new paths.
0: And feeling that body of ours, even if it feels um, tough to to have those emotional experiences yeah. of doing it. can in terms of that kind of sitting around um, the overachiever, and we're not looking directly at Nick right now, but maybe we are, how do we help create that new environment for someone to feel like that they can uh, also be safe to explore that terrain? Because, of course, children might be going through it, but partners- Parents, even that we want to support to see themselves in a new light as well.
1: With all relationships, it starts with trying to make a safe space for that partner to be vulnerable. And because that's when you're going to learn what's really behind you know them and then what's really behind maybe their achievement so think about what you can do to create that safe space maybe it's about making sure that you you watch your reactions so so you're not maybe reacting in a way that (laughs) where the partner becomes defensive or shuts down you know understanding what it is that we can make this safe and and one question i often ask a partner is what does support look like for you right now you know if they're overwhelmed you know you don't have to know what to do for your partner but you do need to ask the question you know what does support look like for you right now and then try and do that try and Create that space. And then when you, if you learn that behind it is this part of them that's feeling, you know, not good enough, ask, you know, what could I do to show you you are good enough? What would that look like? What are the behaviors I can do? And it seems really simple, but actually sitting down with your partner or partners and actually making a list of what are the things I can do that tell you that I love you or that tell you that I'm good enough, the actual behaviors can make a huge difference. Cause sometimes that's just what we want from our partners. We just want them to do things that hit right in that part of us that says we're not worthy or we're not good enough. And they can be simple things like, you know, buying gifts or writing a note or, you know, sending a card or buying flowers, whatever it is, learn, learn what your you know, partner's needs are and then learn how you can meet them.
0: And if we have an overachiever who's reaching into the well in a beautiful way and their motivation is pure, is it also about us finding a capacity for joy for those achievements? Because potentially this is a rich field that you can roll in where you didn't have to actually do anything to get there.
1: Yeah, we can (laughs) congratulate and congratulate the small things and and showing because I think that's the main I guess challenge being in partnerships or, or or your siblings or in family with high achievers is we think that they're fine. We think that they don't need congratulations or they don't need to be told they're good enough because because on the surface they just seem like they don't need it. Um, but I'm here to tell you, you know, I've sat with a lot of people as a psychologist for a long time. Everyone needs that. Everyone needs you to actually say or to actually express that they're successful, they're good enough, they're not a failure. And and finding out ways to do that can make a real difference.
0: Chris, I look deep in your eyes and say it is always a delight to chat with you. I feel like I've had my own private therapy session with you this morning. Chris is a psychologist. He's the author, as I said, of the new rulebook, Notes from a Psychologist to Help Redefine the Way You Live. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Always my absolute pleasure. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.